I want to confess. Um, I want to confess a quandary to you folks tonight, since it's just us friends here, um, and that is, uh, Doctor Young is away. He's attending a funeral. That's not the quandary. The quandary is that I've been left to cover for him, and the quandary, the tension that I feel is uh, having multiple texts that I'd like to talk to you about and from and not being able to narrow the text down. Um, I don't know if you've ever struggled with that kind of quandary or not, but I am there. I have Actually, I've got two outlines tucked in, tucked in my Bible uh, that are completely unrelated issues. Um, and even coming in here tonight, I've met Doug Yancey, and I said, I'm in a real quandary. And he said, what's that? I said, I've got to speak in about three minutes, and I'm not sure what I'm going to speak on. Um, so here's what I really want to do. You know, we're, we're taping this, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. And I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking with you from the Scripture. I was going to be in Jude 24-25, uh, a great anthem of praise. Two verses, but it's a, it's a short hymn of praise to God for, for preserving us in Christ. Now unto Him who's able to keep us from stumbling who's able to present us faultless before His throne with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power. I wanted to talk about that, but I am drawn to this text um, in Proverbs chapter 30. And I, boy, I hope this is not my my flesh. Um, And I hope the Lord restrains me from saying or doing anything that's uh, too terribly unseemly. Proverbs chapter 30 celebrates God's common grace. The Scripture talks about grace in several ways. One of the ways with which we're most familiar with is... um, um, I'm too far over, aren't I? One of the ways that we're most familiar with grace is, is what theologians, systematic theologies, call special grace. Pardon my writing. I should have been a doctor. Um, it's special grace. Um, but there is um, in Scripture something called common grace. Common grace. Special grace is that grace that God pours out upon us in Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He's made us alive together in Christ. He's raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. We're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. That is God's special grace to unconverted, spiritually dead, unredeemed people. But there is a, uh, another aspect of grace that's not often talked about in the Scripture, and that's God's common grace. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that God is kind to both the, the, uh, the good and the evil, He makes the sun rise and the sun set. He sends rain um, uh, on both the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. That's God's common grace goodness. 1 Timothy um, chapter 4 verse 10 has somewhat of an enigmatic reference here. It talks about God being the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And it would appear there that God is going to save everyone, kind of a universalism. Because of the phrase, God is the Savior of all men, comma, pause, especially of those who believe. God is the Savior of all men in the sense that He sends the sun and He sends the rain on both the converted and unconverted. 
He permits uh, the, the grass to grow and fruit trees to bloom and, and cattle to be uh, raised and, and uh, all these common things that we enjoy. In the fall, I will enjoy God's common grace goodness and, and UT football. Um, to, be in the, to be in the stadium on a, on a Saturday afternoon with my son and take in a good football game, honestly, is just, you can say what you want to, but it's a common grace kindness of God. To be, uh, to be in a country, the land of the free and the home of the brave is a common grace kindness of God. Um, to be able to, to have running water and, and uh, sanitation and good food and all these kinds of things that you'll find in the Scripture is God's common grace kindness and His goodness. And Proverbs chapter 30 has about seven or eight examples of God's common grace kindness and His goodness in which God is the Savior of all men. But He is especially the Savior in a special way, a special redemptive converting way of those who believe, of those who trust in the Lord. God's common grace goodness touches every facet of life, every aspect of human existence. Family, marriage, work, simple pleasures, economics, even the manner in which the social order is maintained, good government or, or um, uh, the safety and security, relatively speaking, that we enjoy. When God redeemed His Old Testament people and brought them into the land of promise, He gave them certain principles, He gave them certain guidelines, and He said, this is to be your wisdom and this is to be your righteousness. There were moral laws and ceremonial laws and civil laws. And these were the structures by which their society was to be uh, orchestrated, to be, uh, to be framed under God's common grace goodness and His common grace kindness. Well, Proverbs chapter 30, there's a bunch of those kinds of things that are mentioned, and, and they're listed here uh, under this aspect of His common grace. But if you'll go with me down to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 21 to 23, there's one aspect of God's common grace that I just want to talk about for a few minutes with you this evening, and that is God's common grace in a stable society. God's common grace goodness to us in a stable society. Follow with me in verses 21, 22, and 23. Under three things the earth quakes. Under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and under a fool when he's satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and under a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Uh, The Scripture in general, and Christ in particular in the New Testament, delights in reversing the expected order of things. For example, Jesus comes and uh, he says things like this, The first will be last, and the last will be first. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's kind of reversing the order. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he opens with what's commonly called the Beatitudes. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. He takes the values of the unconverted. He takes the values of a fallen world system and he reverses them. He turns them upside down and inside out. And that's a blessing. That's a kingdom blessing. But in the text before us this evening in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21, 22, and 23, Proverbs 30 pictures something else, a reversal of order that actually undermines God's common grace and leads not to social stability. In fact, it leads to social instability. It's a form of divine judgment, if you will. It's, um, 
it's destabilizing. And the, the reference here to the fact that the earth quakes, it's a reference to social order trembling and collapsing under the weight of fools and under the weight of scoundrels. One of the ways that God begins to judge a nation, one of the ways that He begins to judge a culture, a civilization, a social entity, is He begins to impact the leaders, those who are in positions of leadership responsibility. I'm talking about civil government now. I'm talking about the social order of things. One of the ways that He begins to judge a people is He begins to blind the leaders. He begins to withdraw godly, good, effective leadership. And that's the heart of what's being said in Proverbs chapter 30, particularly in verses 21 and 22. It's a sober social commentary on a world that's turned upside down. One commentator puts it this way. He says, here we're confronted with no mystery, only with four types of people we could well do without. Four types of people we could well do without. We're only going to look at the first two. Another commentator says there are four human conditions which are intolerable to society, and these are listed in the text for us. An old Puritan commentator by the name of Charles Bridges says, Next to things which were unsearchable, uh, Agur, the man who writes these words in Proverbs 30, now mentions some things that are intolerable, things for which the earth is disquieted, bringing confusion wherever they're found. Who does not naturally condemn things out of place as unsuitable and unseemly? Order is the law of the works of God in the world, no less than in the church than in the world. And any breach of that order is to be deprecated. Four such evils are mentioned here. Two connected with men, two connected with women, one in community and the other in the family. We're just going to look at the ones in the community. And frankly, I think, in all honesty, the reason I'm drawn to this text is because of events that we've been reading in the paper in recent days things we've been watching on the news and hearing on the radio and so on. Does God's Word speak to these kinds of things? You bet it does. You bet it does. Because God's Word addresses the social order. God's Word addresses the structure of life and the things that make for good and decent living and good and decent lifestyles. I'll give you an example. When Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, one of the pastoral letters, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy... He says that I I would that you pray for all men, especially for those who are in positions of authority and responsibility, kings and governors and so on, that you, Timothy, and those who are called by the name of the Lord may live lives that are characterized by peace and godliness. Peace and godliness. And when the Lord begins to judge a nation, when a nation comes under God's judgment, uh, Proverbs or Romans chapter one rather says that when we when we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we take what can be known of God in creation, the heavens declaring His glory, the heavens revealing His eternal power, wisdom, and might, and when we take what can be known of God in creation, His invisible attributes and almightiness, and we attribute that to something other than the Creator and begin to suppress the truth, God says, "Here's what inevitably happens." I will give them over, I will give them over, and I will give them over. And we're not going to turn to it, but Romans chapter 1, verse 21, verse 24, and I think verse 28, talk about this God giving over to judgment, a nation, a populace, 
who take the truth of God and suppress it with lies and unrighteousness. And the inevitable outcome of that in, Proverbs, in, uh, pardon me, in Romans chapter 1 is a destabilizing of the social order. Uh, an old commentator, Greek commentator by the name of A.T. Robertson, um, I had this written not in the margin of this Bible. For some unknown reason, about eight or nine months ago, I switched translations. For 20 years, I've used the New King James Bible. And for some unexplicable reason, honestly, I don't know why, I switched to the New American Standard Bible. But I had written in the bottom of my Bible, in the, in the bottom of that text in Romans chapter 1, A.T. Robertson's quote, which is this. He says, the three phrases, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, is like clods dropping on a coffin of a civilization. And oh, dear friends, I wonder if we cannot at times hear the clods dropping on life as we have known it in America. Proverbs chapter 30, I'm drawn to the text because of, frankly, what's taking place in, in the Bluff City. If you were to go to the City of Memphis website, uh, you would see that the Bluff City is compared to the city, the shining city on the hill. It's a reference from a sermon by John Winthrop, which Ronald Reagan took and made that as kind of the theme of his administration, that America was the city on the shining hill. It's a biblical reference to the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe the lights in the Bluff City have been dimmed in recent days. And does the Scripture address that? Yes, it does. In part, here in Proverbs chapter 30, in the wisdom of God, because of a destabilizing factor that is at play and that is at work. And I want you to notice, just in these two verses, 21 and 22, first, the, the public disruption to a stable society comes as a result when people who are not really qualified for leadership, in verses 21 and the first part of 22, are placed in positions of responsibility and leadership under three things. The wisdom of God says the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king. What's being envisioned here is the person who gains authority over others, but really does not have the aptitude, the character, the competence to lead and to govern well. And what begins to happen as a result of that is some destabilizing factors in the culture and in the society, like throwing a pebble on a pond, it begins to ripple out and begins to affect the different strata and the different areas of the culture and society in which this takes place. The elevation and reward of incompetence and lack of character to a place of authority and preferment may be politically and socially expedient. But in the light of Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 and 22, it is disruptive, chaotic, and disordering to a godly, well-ordered society and culture. You know what? In America, we've made it a politically correct badge of social progress when these kinds of things happen. Preferment over character and achievement may be the legacy of the activism of the 60s and 70s. Um, it may be in part the legacy of Lyndon Johnson's The Great Society, a set of expansive domestic programs inaugurated by the president and a host of other ambitious programs. But there's one thing, listen, there's one thing that government cannot do because it has not been given this responsibility. It cannot change the heart and soul of a nation. When the Lord in His wisdom structured life 
in the Garden of Eden, He ordained three spheres of authority. He ordained, first of all, the home. He ordained the church. And later on, He ordained government. And Romans chapter 13 says that God has has given the government the power of the sword to promote righteousness and to restrain evil. He's not given the church the power of the sword. He's given the church the keys of the kingdom to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to open the kingdom of God wide through the free offer of the gospel. He's given certain responsibilities and leadership within the home. But listen, those three things, the interplay of those three things, government, home, and church, impact all of our lives. And as God begins to judge a nation or a people for their ungodliness and their unrighteousness, one of the ways, not exclusively, But one of the ways that he begins to do this is he begins to withdraw wise, discerning, competent leadership built upon godliness and character. We won't turn to it, but Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 3 describes Israel as they were coming under judgment from the Lord. And one of the things that he began to do is he began to impact them economically. He began to deprive them of of bread and stock and supply he began to raise up ineffective leadership that was undiscerning and unwise. That was one of the means. And what should have led to a cry of repentance from the Lord's people did not lead to a cry of repentance. It did not lead to humbling themselves before the Lord because they didn't exactly recognize what was going on. The proverb points to the elevation of the ill-prepared to places of influence and leadership. Um, so that you'll know, I didn't prepare this for tonight. I taught this in the Sunday school class I teach on Sunday mornings in July of 2006. So I didn't prepare this with the newspaper and all that's going on in mind. This is an old thing. This is an old text for me, an old content. But for me, it's had fresh application in recent weeks. And I hope it'll have some application for you. Again, one commentator says a servant who gains authority over others has neither the training nor the disposition to rule well or to rule wisely. It seems to me when I say our culture, I'm not just talking about Memphis, I'm talking about the culture at large, that we've elevated, we've elevated the celebrity status to just a completely ill-advised, irrational degree. I mean, celebrity days based on being known. Um, I, I don't mean any offense by this, but, but, but honestly, uh, the press and coverage that Anna Nicole Smith, God rest her soul, and I'm, I mean that sincerely, sincerely, I, and seriously, but the inordinate amount of press that, that this departed person has received is symptomatic of where our culture and where our society is today, where celebrity is based simply not on character, talent, or abilities. It's just based on being known. And we're all natural imitators. We are all natural imitators. My mother does not have a college education. She doesn't have a teacher certificate, but she taught me pretty impeccable English because I imitated what she said. We're all natural imitators. I shared with the staff today in the staff time that when I was growing up in... Uh, Nashville and playing stickball in James Court, a little cul-de-sac off of Robertson Road in West Nashville. We'd play pickup ball games with broomsticks and wiffle balls. And uh, 
we would choose teams and we would have to be different ball players. Uh, some of you guys, will, because I'm 50 years old, some of you guys will remember uh, Carl Yastrzemski. You'll remember Pete Rose. You'll remember Mickey Mantle. Uh, we had celebrity ball teams. We had a fantasy league and didn't know it. We were ahead of our time. Uh, we would be different pitchers. Juan Marshall. Anybody remember Juan Marshall with the exaggerated leg kick? Louis Tiant. You remember Louis Tiant? The exact. Whoever you were, you'd say, "I'm, you know, Louis Tiant pitching this inning," and you had to go through. You had to be Louis Tiant. We're all natural imitators. Your children are born imitators. That's why it's so important. The models that they pick to follow, the leaders they pick to follow. The characters to which they choose to follow because we're all natural imitators. Well, the problem here is in our culture today is that we elevate the wrong models. We compensate and reward the wrong models. And seemingly the culture loves to have it so. Well, elevating the decadent and inconsequential celebrity who has the spiritual IQ of a moral cretin is not wise. It is not wise. In fact, it's ruinous to the fabric and the soul of a nation. What government cannot do, God has called the church to do through the means of grace, through the gospel, through prayer, through intercession, through, through not copying the world's model of leadership, but defining leadership in a biblical manner, through raising up the kind of leadership that honors the Lord, that loves God, whose wisdom is predicated on the fear of the Lord and not the fear of man. The one indispensable ingredient for leadership, according to Scripture, is not vision. It's character. It's character. And the first principle of character is the fear of the Lord. And without character in places of leadership, the social order crumbles and trembles. second observation I'd make from the text is in verse 22. And that is, uh, there is in this picture a fool when he's satisfied with food, there's in this picture, a man or woman unfit for work. Proverbs introduces fools and their foolishness. It translates various Hebrew words with this, um, this idea of fools and foolishness. The word that's used in uh, verse 22 is, is the word nabal, N-A-B-A-L. It means uh, basically a, a thick-headed, insensitive person, a person that's insensitive to correction, that's insensitive to truth and repentance. It's the kind of person, Psalm 14.1 says, um, says there's, there is no God. That's the thick-headed, insensitive person. Because you and I are surrounded by incontrovertible evidence of the existence of God. You know, to say that there's no God when you behold the sunrise and the sunset or the cry of your newborn infant would be to say that a strong wind blew through a junkyard and out came a 747. That's just nonsense. It's just, in, it's just utter nonsense. Well, in verse 22, the, the thick-headed person, the, the, the insensible person, is dismissive of what is morally right and appropriate. They're dismissive of what's reasonable and right. Um, the little phrase here, well-fed, suggests reward without merit. It's, the unconverted, it's an unconverted person. It's a person who rejects correction and guidance. It's a lazy, unprincipled person. As one commentator says, a fool who instead of being corrected is confirmed in his folly by his success and his prosperity. And woe to the people who find themselves being led 
and under the leadership of these kinds of characters. As one commentator called them, fools and scoundrels. You see this played out in American life today? Boy, you bet. It's the kind of mentality of uh, the person who spills McDonald's coffee in their lap and then sues them because the coffee was too hot. They're not personally responsible. McDonald's is. It's the celebrity entertainer athlete who's paid multiple millions of dollars and elevated to an undue status of influence. It's like Tom Cruise talking about postpartum depression. What could he possibly know about postpartum depression? In the 1980s, I, I, or early 90s, I sent off. USA Today had a full-page ad for Scientology, and I sent off for it. I was just curious as to what they'd send me. So I've been doing this kind of goofy stuff a long time. I've been on some pretty amazing mailing lists. Uh, and uh, I carried on handwritten correspondence with some Scientologist in, in uh, California for months, back and forth, back and forth. It'd be one sentence or two, and I'd send it back, and they'd respond with one sentence or two. We just went back and forth until I finally grew tired of it. But, you know, Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. Have you ever read anything about Scientology? You ever, you know anything about L. Ron Hubbard, the, the founder of Scientology? Oh, my goodness. How bizarre. How utterly bizarre. It's like Richard's gear concern for world peace. It's like... <laughs> It's like Sean Penn's concern for the treatment of Iraqi detainees. He's an actor, for goodness sakes. It's like Elizabeth Taylor appearing on Oprah and talking about marriage. (laughs) She's been married eight times. Why do we care? Why do we care? You get my point. In American life today, we elevate fools and their folly, and we reward them handsomely for their foolishness. And God help us. David Atkinson calls the Proverbs, this calls the people in view in Proverbs uh, 30, 21 through 24. He says, it's four people hard to cope with. The worst of them is the fool, the arrogant, hard-headed, demanding parasite who leeches resources while contributing nothing in return. And the point I hope is clear, that as God's people, we, we are called to be salt and light in a perverse and corrupt and crooked generation. Salt was an antiseptic. It was a purifying preservative agent. And when Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 begins to give the values of His kingdom, and He talks about people who know themselves to be poor in spirit, morally, spiritually bankrupt, without help and without hope, apart from the saving work of Christ. When He talks about people who are, who are meek and humble, humbled by their sin before an infinitely holy God who condescends to save them through Christ. When he talks about mercy and peacemaking and being pure of heart, he talks about the values of the citizens of the kingdom. He comes down to chapter 5 in Matthew, verses 13 and 14, and he says, it's those kind of people who've been called to be the salt of the earth. It's those kind of people who've been called to be the light of the world. It's those kind of people who've been called to be the city on the hill. It's those kind of people who are the only hope for any society, any culture under God. It's the people who are called by the name of the Lord. The people who will humble themselves and turn from their ways and seek His face and call upon the Lord for Him to come and heal our land. 
I've been grieved in recent days as I've read the newspaper voraciously. As I have watched the newspaper, I've been grieved for a variety of reasons. And I've written letters and I've made phone calls and I've been too exercised and too sinful and too fleshly. There I said it and I meant it. But I'm grieved when I see these kinds of things paraded before our eyes because of the lens of Scripture. Because I tremble and I wonder, are we looking and not knowing at the hand of God's correction and judgment in city life, in county life, in national life? And if we are, I say, oh God, have mercy upon us. Oh God, have mercy upon us and raise up strong, godly leadership who loves you, who fears you, who trembles at your word, who humbles themselves before you and turn our hearts again toward yourself. There are many other things that are pointed out in the text that, that uh, you could find in the text. Uh, verses 21, 22 talk about not just public disruptions to stable society, but the next verses, uh, 23, talk about domestic disruptions to a stable society as well. Because um, the health of the home is the health of the church, is the health of the society. They're, they're inseparably connected, inseparably connected. And I pray God have mercy upon us. God have mercy upon us. And give us men and women who love you supremely and who desire to honor you and desire to serve you. You know, uh, the, the minor prophets, uh, I'm thinking of Amos and Micah, uh, they, began to, um, they began to talk about uh, social issues, issues with which the Lord is not pleased. Proverbs 11.1 1 says that, that the just weight and the balance is of important concern to the Lord because a just weight or a false, a false weight, rather a false measure, is an abomination to the Lord. My dad came to Christ at 17 in a small, hick, hillbilly, East Tennessee town. If you're from there, I mean no offense. But Shane and I graduated from the same high school, so I know uh, he knows exactly what I'm talking about. He was working in a grocery store, and uh, he worked in the meat department. And uh, when uh, customers would come in, he was instructed, and he did this prior to coming to Christ, to... um, to weigh the meat heavy, to weigh the chickens heavy, to adjust the scale so it would be heavy. He comes to Christ and he tells the owner of the store, I can't do it anymore. It's just not right. It's just not equitable. You think the Lord is concerned that there's 12 inches to the foot and 36 inches to the yard? You think he's concerned about business principles and ethics that are socially unjust, that impoverish the poor? You think the Lord is concerned about social insensitivities and social injustice on the backs of the poor and impoverished, the widows and the orphans. Read the Minor Prophets. It's those kinds of things that drew the judicial hand of God against Israel in the Old Testament. The same hand that still in Romans chapter 1 begins to turn a nation over to its sins and the inevitable social consequences that begin to play out from its sins. When I read the newspaper and I watch the TV after I get over my fleshly indignation, I groan, I groan 
And I say, oh God, have mercy upon this city. And have mercy upon us, your people. And interject yourself. And allow righteousness and truth and justice and equity to prevail. Do we have a scriptural basis for doing that? Yeah, you bet we do. Proverbs chapter 30. And many other places in the scripture as well. I'll close with this. I read a book um, this past year called The Long March. Fascinating book written by a man by the name of Roger Kimball. Not to be confused with the fugitive, that was uh, Richard Kimball. Um, in the, the Long March, he chronicles the cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s. You know, I'm a boomer. I was born in 56, and uh, I'm not too proud of what the legacy of boomers is. Are, um, is, are. I'm from East Tennessee, forgive me. Um, but the book is organized around some of the leading protagonists, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, Timothy Leary, whose claim to fame was, uh, what it was it, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out, or something like that. You know, when Timothy Leary died, this is, has nothing to do with anything. When he died, he had his head frozen at a minus 360 degrees in liquid nitrogen. He was hopeful that someday there would be a medical cure and his head could be reattached to a body. That's the honest truth. These are the people that we quote and follow in America. <laughs> I think, my goodness, my goodness. Anyway, that, that don't have anything to do with anything. But um, anyway, this was the generation, the beat generation, the 60s. Uh, Dennis Hopper, the actor, is a leftover beat person. I think he's been beat up one time too many. But um, this is the generation that, that led my generation down blind alleys and dead ends. This is the generation that has given us abortion on demand and a plethora of other social evils. Over 40 million abortions in America since 1973. This is the generation. This is the generation. Listen to me. This is the generation that by and large is presently leading America. And I wonder, and you wonder with me, is God gradually turning us over? Is God gradually turning us over to the consequences of our rebellion against Him? And if He is, I say, Oh God, Oh God, have mercy upon us. I love history, love to read history, love biographies. Um, 18th century England, there were more gin mills than medical clinics and hospitals or child labor to the point that some street urchins were working 70 and 80 and 90 hours a week. And God raised up a George Whitfield who began to thunder the gospel to a dead, dry, and formal, unconverted clergy. They chased him out of the church and he went into the, the moors and the fields in England. And he preached in Bristol among uneducated coal miners who fell under such conviction that their black-sooted cheeks began to run white as rivulets of tears cleansed away the channels where the tears were flowing. And God was pleased in a generation to turn the heart of England toward Himself once again. And as a result of the revival and proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, social justice began to prevail. 
Prisons were reformed. Hospitals were established. All of this flows out of the power of the gospel and God being pleased and honored to vindicate Himself among His people once again. And my heart's cry, beloved, tonight is, Oh, God, grant it. Grant it in our nation. And would you grant it in our city for the good of your people and for the praise of your own glory. Amen. Fathers, we bow before you in closing tonight. We, uh, we just marvel at the veracity, the truthfulness of the Scripture. How unerringly accurate is your diagnosis of our malady, of our evil, of our sinful and social plight, and how unerringly wise and powerful is your remedy. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, might you do an extraordinary, surprising work of grace in the midst of us, in our own hearts, our own lives, our families, a life of Gracie Van, the community in which we live and work. Might you do that, Father, for the praise of Christ, for the glory of your name, for the advance of your kingdom, for the good of your people. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.